1: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast,
2: Yep. This is, we,
0: we bring to you our own podcast.
2: We're bringing it. Uh, this is Matt Tebby. I'm joined with uh, Ben Sturkey. Hey, guys. And we are in the middle of our series, uh, Being a Christian in America. It's mm-hmm. a little dicey out there, Ben. You've been on the yep. streets lately?
0: I have, yep. Every day, I, uh, I, look at, I at least look out my window, and uh, <laughs> my window <laughs> looks out onto the street, and uh, yeah, I can tell it's getting dicey out there. It's a
2: little scary. I mean, there's people out there. I don't know if you knew this, but not everybody's a Christian. And not I didn't, everybody's a Christian. I didn't know if you it's knew true. this, but not everybody sees being a Christian in America the same way. Mm,
0: I definitely knew that. Although, not from looking out at my street, but more from looking at Facebook. Oh, that's yeah. how I know that.
2: Okay. So. Well, um, I'll send you a... I have an InfoWars article about that. I'll send it to you later. <laughs> I got it from Facebook. Uh, so today, one of the th- one of the themes that's emerging as we, as we work through this series is how the words Christian... Uh-huh. and the the identity of american yeah. how they have become conflated meaning mm. how they are becoming one thing and part of what we're trying to do here is pull them apart and look mm-hmm. at okay what what makes a christian and what makes an american mm-hmm. and how are those things conducive to one another yeah. and how do those things conflict one another yes right um it's a fun little thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's necessary work. I think it used to be, it used to feel a lot more comfortable to be an American than to be a Christian, and um, I think there were just it it was easy to sort of uh, just assume that a lot of these things that we're now realizing we need to tease apart, a lot of these things just sort of comfortably coexisted. Yes, you know, and so a lot of what we thought about the American dream, for example, to Get to our you know to, to start oh, to introduce our interviewee today. Did. A lot of the uh, tenets of the American dream, uh, we just assumed were sort of Christian ideas that we mm. that we just sort of unreflectively uh, adopted as you know, and then you know we can you can find a little something or other in the Bible that seems to indicate that this is okay. But I think more and more we're realizing okay, maybe this American dream uh, is not a Christian. Thing at all, you know, or or maybe there's elements of it that we need to uh, prophetically critique or resist or opt out of, you know. Maybe the gospel actually conflicts with elements of the American dream.
2: Well, that's still up for debate, Ben.
0: Well, D. L. (laughs) Mayfield, not for D. L. Mayfield though. To differ,
2: she has written a great book, "The Myth of the American Dream: Reflections on Okay." These are values in America: affluence, Mm -hmm. autonomy, Mm. safety. and power oh man these are these are these are the core commitments america at one point with every head bowed and every eye closed uh raised her hand and accepted affluence Mm. autonomy safety and power into her heart Yep, she was young but it Mm. actually it actually made a big difference it stuck with her (laughs) and uh you know uh, d.l mayfield in this book does a great job of holding those four values up and saying In what Mm. ways do those help us be Christians? And in what ways are those in contrast or conflicting with Christians? What values are baked into our American bones Mm. that work against us living faithfully? Not things that we've volitionally or consciously chosen. It's just part of the water we swim in. Mm. So, she's a great interview. (laughs) Yes. Uh, This is a great book, and we're excited to bring it to you as we continue in this series. As you listen, if you Mm. have questions or ideas or you... You know, we get listener mail, virtual mail, um, from people. Electronic and, mail. Yeah. Some people call it email they, is
0: kind of a shorthand version. Well, of that. That, Well, I don't know if that's caught on yet. I don't know if that's caught on yet. Let's let's just call it thing. virtual mail. Yeah.
2: They they uh, you can send us that uh, gravity uh, podcast at gravityleadership.com. com. Let us know what you think or if yeah. it stirs things for you. You have questions, yeah. and uh, we may yeah. we may share I, it on the air.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we may do like a Q&A uh, part of this series, um, because there are lots of questions. I, I'm realizing the more we, um, which I love, the more we talk about this stuff, the more we realize how much there is to talk about, because there's really yes. good questions uh, about what does it mean to be a Christian in public? What does it mean to, you know, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. anyway, enjoy the interview. I think yeah. that's all. I think that's all we need to uh, announce is just uh, get ready for a great interview with D.L. Mayfield.
2: Get into us let's, let's go. Let's get up.
0: Let's get into it.
2: Danielle Mayfield, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast.
3: Thank you so much for having me here.
2: Yes. Well, it's our honor. You've written a book called The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power. Uh, mm. just some easy reading on a Sunday afternoon, you know, with your extended family. Oh, yeah. Nice just little light Beach light reading.
0: reading. This is a yeah. beach book. <laughs>
2: Nice little holiday conversation with people you barely know or see once a year. Danielle, before we jump into this, it's part of our series on being a Christian in America. So the pitfalls and potentials that living in our country give us as Christians. Could you introduce yourself to our audience, um, who you are, what you spend your time doing, and where you do it at?
3: Yeah. So my name is Danielle Mayfield. I write as D.L. Mayfield. So that's how you'll find me on the internet. Um, I am someone who was raised very squarely within the American evangelical uh, fold, and mm-hmm. uh, my dad's a pastor. I was homeschooled. I went to Bible college to be a missionary.
2: You have all and the credentials.
3: I am. I'm just Checking like a, all
2: the boxes I'm here. a
3: card-carrying member of the evangelical yeah. elite, and- <laughs> uh, yeah. And then I've sort of been on a, a bit of a journey of just having my own life experiences be confronted mm. with realities that are really different from my own and and actually really experiencing a revitalization of my faith instead of mm. a complete destruction, which I think growing up uh, you know, so firmly within this niche, I, I think we were taught to be a little scared, right? Of yeah. expanding your horizons and it might make everything crumble. Well that isn't the case of what happened to me. And Mm. as I started to be in contact with people who are different from me, and and my story really revolves around working with refugees in in my city of Portland, Oregon, and their reality, their histories, and then their experience of how hard America was for them, you know, really just made Mm. me ask myself two questions. And one was, is my city actually good news for people. You know, I was raised with this idea that if you're a refugee in a refugee camp, like you're going to want to come to America. It's the land of opportunity. It's the land where everything will be awesome. Mm. And it was just so hard for these communities who had so Mm. many barriers um, to to actually thriving. And as a Christian, I do believe God puts within us this desire to see people thrive, right? Not just yeah. survive. We, we want to see people yeah. actually living into their God-given potential for life. And so that was not happening with my neighbors and is because of these systemic issues, right? That face them. And then that led me to this other question of, is my religion good news for people who aren't exactly like me? And yeah. and these are some big questions. I do not have the answers to them, but I am grateful to be asking them. And I'm grateful for how asking those questions has has changed my life. I went ahead and got um, my master's in teaching English to speakers of other languages. So that's kind of what I do in my neighborhood. And I, I work mostly with people who come from non-literate backgrounds. So refugees and immigrants who for some reason didn't have access to education. So I teach English classes. I lived in low income neighborhoods in the U.S. for about 14 years now, mostly with refugee and immigrant neighbors. And I'm having a blast. Um, But there's some hard stuff too.
2: Yeah. Awesome. Well, maybe that's the way into this book. I think I'd love to hear what you were confronted with as you worked with these refugee populations like how did the questions begin for you maybe when did your answers stop working or your frames become inadequate to deal with the reality that you were encountering
3: yeah i think maybe your listeners will identify with parts of it because I think there's really, again, coming back to these two ways that these questions started, and one was about religion, and then one was about how my uh, culture and city and, and country was set up. And, and to me, they actually are really related. But I think the first ones that really came up for me had to do with Christianity and, and being a missionary. So I was going to Bible college in Portland, taking these classes on how to convert people. And you know, most of them were like, you're gonna go overseas and you're gonna do it. And that's uh, I was sort of feeling a little antsy. So I decided to like practice on people and and heard about these refugee groups in Portland who were Muslim. They came from these rural tribal backgrounds. I was learning how to convert people and and really this idea that it would be a pretty easy process, right? You would show the Jesus film, you would walk them through the Romans road and, uh, you know, either people would convert or you would then move on right to the next group of people that might be more receptive to it. So I actually did that. I I was working with these refugees through a resettlement agency and I was supposed to be teaching them English, but I'm like 19 and don't know what I'm doing. And instead I just sort of got absorbed into their community, into their life and, and started hanging out and working with the kids. But I did do things like, like show the Jesus film. And actually to this like a packed apartment full of families, there's probably like four or five families from um, this uh, Somali culture there. And after we watched it, like sort of the main patriarch of the community just looked at me and he kind of held his hand up to his chest and he said, you know, Isa, Jesus is here, but Muhammad is here. And then he put his hand over his head. And then they all just looked at me like, yeah, it's great. You're a Christian. We're Muslim. Um, we can't pay our rent next month. Like, could you help us? figure out how to pay our bills. Right. And so for me, that was such a watershed moment of like, I'm doing everything I know how to do to be a good Christian and to share the good news. And I'm, I'm coming up against centuries of culture, background, education, you know, all these things. And and I came from such a literacy centric background. You're like, let's read Mm -hmm. the Bible together. They couldn't read. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. literally could not read in any language. And so Uh, You know, there's so many barriers. And again, looking back, I'm just so grateful I was forced to have to ask myself these questions because now I am really all about a faith that incorporates our actual lives. If Jesus Mm. is good news for my friends spiritually, he's also going to be good news for them economically, and they should be able Mm. to have all their basic needs met and and all this of which... In some ways, actually, is really hard because that is a long-term journey with people, right? That's not like you yeah. swoop in, you convert people, you get a rejoice, and you get a leave. And so, mm. it, it was a it was a wild experience, and I actually felt a little lonely at Bible college because mm. I was not successful at converting anybody to be a Christian, and yet I felt. The Holy Spirit at work in these communities, and I I was I wasn't really able to share that with people just because of what the narrative was about how we're supposed to be interacting.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that your stories would sound like, oh, that you know, we'll try harder next time, and you know, maybe maybe you'll get. And you're trying to share a story of like, no, God's at work, and this is exciting, but it doesn't quite match the metrics that they're looking for. It Doesn't
3: count. Yeah, and exciting in that. Well, and also just exciting in that we as the church, we as Christians are invited into these long-term relationships to help make Mm. our communities places of flourishing and not just for us, right? And I think it's Mm -hmm. been a little hard for me. And and this goes, so that's kind of what my first book, Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary was about. And then my, my second book, The Myth of the American Dream is a little bit more about how can we start to understand that we've really if we have this vision for flourishing from God, you know this vision of shalom, as as you know, it's called in the Old Testament. Um, have we focused it too much on just our churches or just our mm. families? And mm. how can we be involved in this exciting and yet really heartbreaking work of of trying to see that happen in our entire city, in our entire community, in our entire country? Mm. And that's really, as an evangelical, a white evangelical, I've sort of struggled with the idea that I wasn't. Given an adequate framework hmm. for the common good for everyone flourishing.
4: Yeah,
2: interesting, right? Because, yeah, that that seems like it it would it would be there, but there are yeah. maybe yeah yeah. And I wonder if your book doesn't help us then begin to pull apart or, or name the various dynamics or narratives yeah. that um, run interference on what seems like should be an obvious outcome of a biblical faith you name these four commitments of the American story, right? This uh, yeah. affluence, autonomy, which by the way, I was telling my 11 year old about your book uh, the other morning I was reading it and I showed him the title and he goes, and I said, do you know what affluence is? He says, no. And I said, do you know what autonomy is? He says, no. But I gave him like a little definition. <laughs> I gave him a little definition of those two words and he's like, oh dad, that's that's totally what America is all about. <laughs> So my 11-year-old my 11-year-old thinks that you're uh, you're right on but let's start with this affluence one. Like um I'm what struck me Daniel as I read your book was that not only do we not have a vision for the common good but in some ways uh, the 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 evangelical witness for what the common good is has been co-opted by these different myths of America so that for instance like God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life involves me being hopefully upper middle-class, not Mm -hmm. too wealthy to be uh, like Mr. Burns evil, but wealthy enough that I don't have to like scrape by every day. Can you, (laughs) right. Can you name maybe like what, what is it about the allure of affluence that could co-opt or subvert maybe a a faithful witness in America?
3: Yeah, for me, I, I was I was glad to start the book off talking about the value of affluence and um, these these four values I talk about, you know, I didn't just pull them out of thin air, but it really came out of sort of playing with some scriptures, uh, in particular, the, the ones where Jesus talks about where he came to do his ministry and where he's going to be at work in the world. So like when Jesus is in the temple quoting... Um, you know, uh, Isaiah 58 in Luke 4, right? And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor. And so I was like, oh, what's the opposite of poor? It's the rich, you know, it's this <laughs> value of affluence. And and how has my life been shaped towards affluence? And I think you're exactly right. I, I need to not only look at like, huh, how has American culture steered me towards wanting affluence? But like, how has my Christian church actually also told me that that yeah. is a sign i'm doing it right a sign that i'm on the right track and 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 again not like these things are all bad i think most of us if we want to be stable financially we do have this idea like and then i'll help other people too you know like we don't want to just hoard but for me affluence is such an important value to start the book off with because it i want it to be a discussion of looking at systems, right? And instead of focusing so highly on individual choices, which is what sociologically white evangelicals do. And a part of that comes from our theology, right? We're Mm -hmm. very much all about that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't think that's a negative thing, but if that's like your entire framework for interacting in the world, you can see some ripple effects. And we really see this when it comes to money. And so like growing up, I really heard a lot of this, um, you know, if you just didn't buy like a latte at Starbucks, if you just save your money, you know, like you'll be able to like pay off your house and you'll be Mm -hmm. able to do all these things. Right. And that Mm -hmm. works for some people. If you maybe had parents who were able to help you with your college education or, you know, your grandparents were able to get a mortgage. Right. Right. Uh, But I think that discussion really overlooks the fact that systematically Wealth has only been concentrated in a a few communities in the United States, and that's actually how it was designed from the beginning, right? So if you look at the Constitution, life, liberty, and happiness for all. um, But truly, the only people who have had rights were white landowning males, and so you can kind of look and see where wealth continues to be concentrated. I mean, you can just look at. Uh, all the statistics. And that's, you know, that's held up. Uh, So I think I I think (laughs) affluence for me was this great way to say, like, hey, let's stop talking about nitpicking individuals choices, like to see if they're deserving of having their own money or not. And and instead, (laughs) let's engage in this idea of wow, this system is not designed for everyone to flourish. We actually like actually capitalism uh, does not uh, prioritize the, uh, the image of God in all people, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I don't mm-hmm. think we should be threatened as Christians to say that we should be able to say, wow, there's some real gaps here. Like, so, for instance, you know, in my city of Portland, there's the minimum wage here. If someone is working 40 hours a week at mm-hmm. the minimum wage, they are not able to take care of their basic needs, right? For food and shelter. And so to me that says, okay, there's something wrong with the system, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that these people are lazy or they just don't try hard enough. They are trying so hard and our system does not take care of them. Our system does not adequately take care of them. So that's kind of more what I would like to talk about. And I think that's a more biblical approach to talking about wealth Mm -hmm. is we, we don't say it's all bad or it's all good, but I say in the book that uh, this theologian Walter Brueggemann really helped me see mm. that wealth is like a main preoccupation of the Bible, which means yeah. economics is is a huge issue in the Bible. And and one of the main things the Bible says is that wealth is a blessing from God. And then the mm-hmm. number two thing, it says wealth makes us forget our neighbors in need. And mm. we have to hold mm. both of those intention at all times. And it, I see Christians, you know, kind of choosing one of those things to focus on more, more than the other.
4: Yeah. yeah.
0: So there's like a, yeah, there's a an inability to kind of hold hold those two things together. To say, yeah, it can be both of these things. It can be a blessing from God and it can be a way that I insulate myself from the needs of my neighbor. Yeah. And you know, it can become a a hazard to my faith.
2: Yes. Yeah, and
3: especially you, if our if our faith is about loving our neighbors, we need to take that right. so seriously. Yes. Yes.
2: Mm, yeah. yeah, you 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 name uh one of the dynamics at work that keeps us maybe from reckoning with our affluence in a biblical way. You talk about the gap between uh, and you're not the only one to do this, but it, you really uh, I think summarize succinctly, well, the research on this, how the gap bet- between production and consumption, how it keeps us from reckoning with maybe the injustice of mm-hmm. of our economic systems, and you're you're working with Brueggemann here and Kavanaugh as you talk about this. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe name, like, uh, how have you seen that show up in your life, or as you work in the lives of the refugees around you, how have you seen that gap uh, show up or maybe come online there?
3: Yeah, I think that's a really huge question, because... Because of our sort of like globalized economic system, we are so removed, as you said, from who's producing the goods that we buy very cheaply. And and I think you know when I was younger, I was really fixated on this question because I wanted to do everything perfectly right. <laughs> and actually, mm. as we're in this pandemic, I, I, I've seen some of these questions arise too, like, uh, you know, should we use Amazon to get goods right now? Is that better than going to Walmart or... You know what I mean? Like We're all having to ask ourselves these questions like, who are we putting at risk? Who are we mm-hmm. profiting off of? And and I think it's okay to just ask those questions. I'm not sure I have a right answer, except to say, leaning in to truly how we're engaging in the world in every step that we can is going to ultimately be helpful. But the system is designed to break us down and to be overwhelming to the point we just end up opting out and we just choose whatever's cheapest for us or what's most convenient You know, and and I do the same thing too. So so I think what's so fascinating about Kavanaugh is he's able to take sort of a spiritual look at that and say, God did not design us to be consumers. God did not design us to be isolated from our neighbors. God does not want us to buy into the Pharaoh mindset, which says you have to exploit people in order to prosper. And so um, really looking into the deeper spiritual truths. One of the things I loved about Kavanaugh is he said, if... So we are just, we live in a consumerist society. We just have to accept that, right? And so that's America. That's how we live. It has spiritual effects on us. And he said, one of the things you can do to sort of combat this consumer mentality is to create because we are made in the image of a creator God. And that's one of the ways we can hmm. sort of start to slowly start this spiritual discipline of learning how to create. And I actually have seen that happening a lot during this global pandemic right like yes people yes. are making masks people are um baking sourdough bread which i know like some people make fun of hipsters for doing that but i love it i love making <laughs> sourdough bread and i honestly feel like it's almost like a spiritual thing like i get to be making this thing yes yeah. paying attention to it and then feed my family like it feels awesome yeah um and i think it does connect me to who i made in the image of
1: We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. Yeah,
2: I see this in my kids, Danielle. I've got an 8-year-old eight, and 11-year-old, and they're cooped up in quarantine now, going on three three months. And when my oh. kids are most crabby grouchy out of sorts it's when they want the 50 dollars sweatshirt that they can't have when their friends get roller skates and now they want them to when they are mad that their ipad keeps crashing while they're playing their video game and they want the nintendo switch and when they come alive is when they're <laughs> ma- they're taking trash and making an obstacle course in the backyard or when some, my daughter creates a calendar of uh, for, for next year with pictures from this year, you know, like when they're yeah. creating things, they are, they come alive, like they flourish, to use your mm-hmm. word. And when they want to consume mm. things, like the gates of hell open up in their little stomachs, you know? Oh, s- yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can relate yep. to this, but yeah, that's. <laughs> um. Well, let's let's move on. I I, I was struck really powerfully on your section on autonomy you have this phrase and I would love for you to unpack it. You said this, you said, what does it mean when those who are free start to idolize liberty?
4: Hmm.
2: What does it mean when those who are free start to idolize liberty? And I thought of uh, the juxtaposition right now in our culture of people for whom it's oppressive to wear like a mask. Like that's that's oppression. Um, and, and there's also people who are protesting things being closed by marching around with guns, you know, around around police officers. I, I don't know if those are like two artifacts of what you mean by that phrase. Uh, would you unpack that for us and how this plays into maybe your understanding of the myth of autonomy?
3: Hmm. Yeah, I think you just, you just took all my examples, which is amazing. <laughs> Sorry. No, I love it. I I think we're on the same track here is we are just seeing in real time, this value come into clash with neighbor love. And it's been a really hard time for a lot of people Hmm. on the sidelines seeing as people who say they're Christians are at the forefront of saying, We have a right here to walk around without a mask, to shop where we want, and to actually gather as churches, right? And so there's 11 churches currently um, suing uh, my governor, the governor of Oregon, uh, to be able to meet, you know, groups larger than 10. And, um, you know, the world is watching. Like, all of our alternative newspapers are reporting on it. And and that's the Christian witness that's kind of being in the headlines right now, which I find so unfortunate, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what if we could be at the forefront of saying, like, this sucks so bad and we just want to love our neighbors. And so we're going to, you know, we're going to stay home and we're going to have some online church that anybody's welcome to join and you can Mm -hmm. join our community. You know, instead we're obsessing about like my rights are being taken away from me. And it's because that value of autonomy is so strong. That's why it's truly clashing with this, the work and life of Jesus and how Jesus summed up the entire Law and Prophets, which is to love mm. your neighbor as yourself, and that's actually one of the ways we show that we love God, right? Is by yeah. loving our neighbor as ourselves, and so it's just everywhere. It's really hard. I, I don't know how you guys are processing it right now, but <laughs> well, it, uh, it, it's it's hard.
2: Yeah, Ben's doing there's, Ben's doing, doing a great of, job. Ben, uh, help us out.
0: Well, as far as far <laughs> yes, as far as you know, I don't uh, I don't show you how I'm processing it. Uh, no, there's a lot of a lot of uh, uh, complaining. Yeah, you know, that's how I'm processing it. Okay. No, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I um, uh, I'm I'm just struck. Uh, one of the one of the it, this actually is a way that it helps me process because I I can find myself feeling so frustrated at people who are doing something that I can't imagine doing or doing something that seems to me, you know, to to besmirch the 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 witness of churches and and of what it means to be a Christian and that that kind of thing. So I can get so frustrated. But I'm struck by like you know the the, the reflections uh, that you put in this book on affluence. We've talked about autonomy. The other two are safety and power. I'm struck by how it helps me connect with where people are at to know that what they're seeking, what we're seeking when we're consuming, what we're seeking when we're seeking autonomy, what we're trying, what we're seeking when we're trying to make ourselves safe and th- you know those we love, and seeking power over other people. We are seeking flourishing. Mm. Like that, like there is a sense in which we're all trying to find life. We're trying to, and it's just that we've believed these lies about how that's going to come. That, you know, that basically what your book says is that the American dream has promised you will have the good life if you can find sufficient affluence, autonomy, safety, and power. And the gospel is basically in direct contradiction to that. But it's the gospel. Isn't saying you shouldn't want to have life. You shouldn't you should want be to flourish. Unsafe. The gospel. Yeah. You should be unsafe and <laughs> not have enough, and you know, and be oppressed, and you know, I don't know what the uh, opposite of autonomy would be. be. Be your life is controlled by somebody else. So all the the tricky part about all of these things that I'm struck by is that mm. the the gospel has a different story about how to obtain f- real flourishing. Mm. And that's what it's in contrast to. And so it, it helps me to, I guess, find common ground to know that the people who are doing things that I find silly or ridiculous or maddening um, are seeking the same thing I'm seeking. Hmm. We're all we're all just, we're all trying to have enough and get by and live a life. And you know what I mean? We're all trying to do the same thing. So, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. and I think for me, I-, I totally agree because these values are, almost like biologically, you know, like a part right.
4: of our life. Be, yeah.
3: And especially things like safety, like I want my kids to be safe, but these values have been so twisted yes. into, into these ways that orchestrate our life where actually it only ends up benefiting a few. And so I think that's one of the mm-hmm. central, you know, I guess the thesis of my book is saying if we live in a society that is fundamentally unequal and unjust and, you know, before the pandemic hit even, the, the rates of income inequality in the United States were basically oh, at, yeah. guild, you know, gilded age levels. Yeah. Um, so it's very unequal. There's very unjust systems everywhere. Um, if you don't believe that, then you're probably going to hate my book, so maybe don't read it. Uh, <laughs> but if you think there's maybe something a little bit wrong, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. So what happens is when people who have benefited historically, right, in this society continue to pursue those values unchecked by a sense of responsibility to their neighbors, that's when the problems happen. And so I think Mm. you're exactly right. We don't get to say like these values are nothing. Instead, I'm like these values, if they're not being at work in the most marginalized, then they're not, then God's not pleased. (laughs) You know, like, then we're not actually a part of God's dream for the world, the kingdom of God happening. And that's why Jesus was always saying, not only am I gonna be at work in these spaces, but like, this is where you're gonna see God's spirit at work continuously. Mm. It's gonna come from the bottom up. Like the Beatitudes is one of the most beautiful, challenging passages of scripture. Because if you look at the average American Christian, I'll just talk about myself here. We, I do not think people who are sad are blessed. You know, I want them to hurry up and get happy, right? Figure out a way to get happy. I do not think people who are poor are blessed. I tend to pity them or think like, oh my gosh, how can I help them? And yeah, I have to be confronted with the fact that Jesus was saying like, no, these are the people who are going to have the keys to Mm -hmm. creating a society where everyone flourishes. Yeah. And that's how we have to sort of shift our narrative, right? And, and in fact, yeah. I kind of don't even want people to read my book. It's like I'm just <laughs> I'm just a privileged person struggling with it here. Yeah. Right. For, for how to for how to move forward, we yeah. have got to be listening to people who yeah. have been on the margins of this society for, for forever. Right. So yes. that's and that's yeah. the part that's so exciting about being a Christian and being an evangelical. <laughs> I'm on this journey of being like, wow, we don't have all the answers. I'm so happy I get to be a part of this wide, rich, global church. Yeah. And yeah. that's so exciting.
2: Yeah, Danielle. That, that, that's where your book came alongside my story, I think. Um, so I remember mm-hmm. like where I was and how old I was. I think I remember what I, what I was wearing. When I r- became aware for the first time, That even though, like, I'd preached dozens of sermons on salvation by grace through faith, and, um, you know, at one point I was a five point Calvinist, uh, and I was so, I, but I still have this, like, yeah, salvation's by grace, right? Like, and and it's a gift. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I remember where I was when I was struck by how thoroughly meritocratic I was in Mm. how I thought about everything not having to do with salvation. So, for instance, the wealthy are wealthy because they deserve it. And the poor are poor they, because they don't. must they have worked don't... hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like, uh, and so like meritocracy, meaning people get what they deserve. And there's yeah. nothing, mm-hmm. there's no extenuating external sub or uh, super personal circumstances or forces or powers at work at all. It's simply mm. like your own personal merit that gets you what you have. And if you mm-hmm. don't, well, then you just go to the court and the court's like, huh, our bad let's uh let's fix this right away and i re- oh, i real yeah. right mm-hmm. uh, and i realized a uh i i'm thoroughly meritocratic even though my my religion is actually debunking that like jesus actively mm-hmm. debunks that and b uh it only works for white guys <laughs> like i just realized like the 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 deck is stacked uh for people in my uh, with my mm-hmm. demographic. Uh, and so, w- one of the things as as you talk about in your book um, on autonomy, you ask this question that I ask all the time. Um, mm. You ask the question, what does it mean to choose the best school for your kids?
0: Mm.
2: Now, um, here's, here's how, I'm gonna tell you how I thought about that uncritically. Okay. Um, and then I want you to respond, like how you unpack that a little bit. So uh, when I think of best schools, I think of like, well, give me the, give me the assessment scale on one to ten, mm-hmm. and I'm picking the schools that have nines and tens. I'm picking the best teachers. I'm picking the best resources. I'm picking the safest schools, right? So there's not violence. I don't want any drugs in my elementary school. Uh, preferably no school shooting within the last ten years. You know, like uh, the school is safe. With smart teachers who are super engaged, where my kid's going to get the best education and have the best chance for success later in life. That's what I assume best to mean. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you can you ruin that for me? (laughs) Oh,
0: all right. (laughs) That's all the time we have for today. (laughs) Thanks for being with me. Just kidding. Go ahead and ruin it.
3: You just lobbed me this fastball that I have to now try and hit. Um, Yeah, this is obviously a question that can get really sticky really fast. And so, Mm. again, I'm not an expert on any of this. I'm just someone who is trying to ask questions. And and one of these questions popped up to me because I'm a white middle class lady. So, yes, (laughs) I'm in these conversations a lot about best schools and making the best choice for my kids. And I have two kids. Mm. I have a. A fourth grader, and I have a son who who's going into kindergarten in the fall, hmm. and I I just kind of one day just thought this this other question, right? It, since we do live in a society that ranks schools, we literally rank schools on a scale of one that's... to ten. Um, whose kids do I think should attend the worst school? <laughs> right, like
0: that's. It, That's a fascinating uh, way of turning that question around.
3: But like, how are we supposed to answer that? It's a really hard question, but I actually think the God that I serve in Christianity is asking that question, right? And the God that Mm. I serve, um, his eye is on the sparrow, right? His eye is on these lowest rated public schools. And, and, so I have lived in these low income neighborhoods and I've been committed to my neighbors. I'm trying to practice neighbor love. It's very, you know, low income usually. Mm-hmm. And then when it came time for my daughter to go to school, you know, I went ahead and looked it up on the internet on one of those sites and I saw our local elementary school has this big fat one out of 10 and it's <sighs> this huge red number. It's like it turns out it was the second lowest rated school in all of Oregon, not just oh Portland, gosh. all of Oregon, oh second yeah. lowest rated school. And my heart just like sank. Like hmm. I just was like, I I almost wanted to barf. Like I, I can't do this. My daughter is so smart. My daughter is so incredible. Like I can't send her here, blah, 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 blah. And I hmm. had like this intense experience with watching my cultural values come to the surface, right? Because I would have thought of myself as like, a well-meaning do-gooder who of course is going to send her kids to school with all her neighbors. And you know, why wouldn't I? That'd be so weird if I did it. And yet I, I have been raised in this culture of fear um, that it Mm -hmm. it was so strong. I'm so glad I was able to push past it because our elementary school has, is such a place of joy in the life of everyone in our family. And my Mm -hmm. daughter really has thrived. I'm not going to say everything about it is great, but um it really has opened my eyes to to what what do we mean when we say safe? You know, safe for who? Who's excluded yeah. from that? What do we mean when we say good? You know, a good teacher. Like the teachers at my daughter's school are incredible and a lot of them have been there for forever, but you know, there's there's some issues there too like all the teachers are white and the vast majority of the students are not white. And so you know, there's there's mm-hmm. some systemic stuff at play there but It has been the fastest way for me to become involved in my neighborhood. Like I spent my whole life trying to be a busybody neighbor and just going to school and walking to school with my daughter every day has done more for me to become a fixture in the neighborhood than anything else. And and I again I sense the spirit of God in this school, which makes sense. There's all these little kids made in the image of God running around there. Uh so yes, God is at work in that school. And I'm so excited I got to be part of it. But it was just a really sobering time for me to realize, wow, these values are strong. Even when mm, you think maybe yeah. you've done some work with them. Yeah. They
2: they're there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Danielle. That's so good. I, I remember seeing um So, Ben and I live in a community uh, right outside of Indianapolis that was ranked in 2017, was ranked the number one city in America to raise a family in, according to Money Magazine. Oh! Uh, So, gold star. No, I, I remember reading that and thinking, wow, that's great. And simultaneously thinking, as a Christian, should I question what money magazine thinks oh is great. that's
3: fascinating yeah you know
2: like do i do i mm. have any cultural or spiritual tools with which to deconstruct mm-hmm. the meaning making of money magazine and how that conflicts with the kingdom of god and i knew that mm. i knew like i knew kind of incip- like incipient like underneath the surface yeah i probably should i, pr- I a christian probably should have some questions about how Money Magazine Decides What's Best. But one of the things that your book is so helpful for for me is that you name these invisible frames, and we've just mentioned a few, but you name dozens and dozens of them mm-hmm. that give us access to our reality so that we can be more faithful. And one of the things you keep testifying to, and I just want to point it out, is when we when we purpose to be more faithful in these really ordinary, normal, worldly realities we meet God, like they Mm -hmm. become doorways into the presence of the triune God. So like God is inhabiting these spaces. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear, am I, am I hearing you right?
3: Oh yeah. It's, it's, I, it's just really nice to hear you say that because sometimes I feel like I'm trying to explain my testimony, right? (laughs) To to communities that trained me to share my testimony, but it's not quite matching up. And so um, I've really, I remember the first time I read about um, Dorothy Day, who started the Catholic Worker movement in the, in the Catholic church. And I remember reading about Dorothy Day and she said, like, I have seen the face of Christ in the poor, you know, she worked in the great depression and, and, and helping all these people and not even helping, just living with them and like giving food and bread lines. And, you know, in this time of extreme need in America, which we're probably entering into a similar time soon, to be Mm -hmm. perfectly honest, you know, she said, I have met Christ there. That's where I meet Christ. And, and she tried to orchestrate her life where she would continue to have these experiences with Christ. And I was like, oh my gosh, That's what happened to me. I I was supposed to be the missionary and bring Christ with me into these neighborhoods. Instead, I'm in these neighborhoods and I am meeting Christ and my Mm. life is being transformed. And and I feel like I'm on this path of, I hope it's the rest of my life. I I am just continually transformed by meeting Jesus in the world. Mm -hmm. um, And and I'll continue to choose to want to follow Jesus.
0: Mm. Yes. Yeah, that's so helpful. And I, I think one of the things... Just reflecting on what um, you know, we're we're all pursuing flourishing, right? And um, the gospel has some things to say about what that looks like that conflict with the American dream. And I, I think I think it just feels really risky for most people to really believe that that might be true. You know, like I can't remember what you said. I think this is Bruggeman talking about uh, that. Really struck with me. Stuck with me again talking about the Pharaoh. Um, I don't know, you called it a principle or something like that, that basically, uh, I think most of us believe, we wouldn't wouldn't have thought through this, but most of us believe that for me to prosper, somebody else has to suffer Mm -hmm. or somebody has to be exploited for me to prosper, you know? So like, let's send my kids to the best schools, but we don't think about, well, like, why are there bad schools (laughs) and who should go to those schools, you know? We just assume, yeah, we should all just compete for these best schools. So anyway, all that to say... I, I've found your testimony really helpful just on this podcast. Cause I think that's what we need to really believe that maybe, maybe we can all flourish, you know, and nobody needs to be exploited. That feels really risky un- mm-hmm. until you hear voices like yours that say, actually, I've I've tried this and it it's actually true. You know, yeah. like uh we we I took the leap, you know, and here's my testimony, and here's how I found Jesus and life, you know, in these places that. The, you know For those of us who are kind of bathed in the American dream, it doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem true. That can't be it. Um, but I, I appreciate you uh, telling us this and voices like yours who are saying, that actually is true. It actually is true.
4: So, yeah, and I,
3: I will say my book can feel a little like a bit of a Debbie Downer at times because that that is also how I go through the world. So, so of course I'm finding joy and a a real faith with God. That doesn't mean it. I'm always happy. And uh, (laughs) I think, I think you'll see that in the book. Yes. (laughs) yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, No, I, I, well, Mm -hmm. I just want to commend this book again. If you're, uh, and actually I want to commend it in this way. If you're feeling like your life is spiritually dry, you know you're you're mm. listening to the sermons, you're going to church every week, you're listening to Caleb. you got your morning devotional and you're looking to actually meet God on a ground level with the with the people who are unspiritual uh, and in in the most surprisingly worldly places. I think uh, Daniel, your book The Myth of the American Dream uh, gives people an imagination by through your own stories of how people can uh, uncover, like a more robust meaty, if you will, like faith, a ro- like a robust mm-hmm. presence with God in and among places that America just has relegated to being unimportant. So thank you so much for this. It's a gift to the yeah, church thanks
3: for this conversation. I thought this was an awesome conversation. Thank yeah. you so much
2: Me too. Yeah, we appreciate your for- cat earlier too. I you know any mm-hmm. anytime we can get a cat on the podcast, I think we really yeah. extend our reach.
0: Yeah. We've been we've been doing this for three years and I I don't know if we've had a cat on, so this is like First, a yeah. bucket list thing for us.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Happy to deliver, yeah.
0: Bless yeah, you. Yeah. Bless you, Daniel. So many so much. ways.
2: Yeah. Thank you. All right, peace.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.